Well, Ephesians chapter 3 tonight. Ephesians chapter 3. And uh, if you don't mind, let's go ahead and stand out of uh, respect for God's word tonight, if you're able. And I'm just going to read verses 20 and 21. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 20. Of course, uh, I think the the letter to the Ephesians is one of my favorites. I don't know if you're supposed to have favorites or not, but uh, for a long time, uh, even as a a young Christian, I loved uh, reading the book of Ephesians. And uh, perhaps now as an older Christian, the more that I've studied it, the more I I love it. So... um, I hope that you don't mind if we go there tonight. Uh, But verse number 20, the Bible says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have to study your word tonight. And Lord, I just pray that you use me to be an encouragement to your people. Lord, uh, you know uh, each and every heart here tonight. Lord, you know who may uh, need what parts of this message, uh, what areas may need to be challenged or encouraged or strengthened. Uh, But Lord, I just pray you guide and direct my words and my thoughts that I would not uh, waste time on anything that doesn't need to be said. Uh, But Lord, that that I would deliver uh, the truth that uh, your people need to hear. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. Now, if you're familiar with uh, the content of Ephesians, uh, here Paul is concluding a a wonderful prayer uh, for that church at Ephesus. And as he concludes it, he concludes it with this uh, awesome statement of, uh, of praise to God, but also encouragement to our faith. And I want to draw your attention tonight, especially to verse number 20. I'm sorry, verse 21, uh, where Paul says, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. And uh, I am well aware that that, uh, you folks probably know very well what this verse is talking about. Uh, But just briefly, I want to break it down a little bit uh, by way of introduction. Uh, He says, uh, first of all, unto him be glory. And here we find a reminder of our purpose. Uh, because whether you're here tonight, you've been Christian for a long time uh, and are a faithful member of this church, or maybe you're newly saved, or even if you're not saved, understand the reason you exist is to glorify God. That is our purpose. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11 says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. We exist for that one singular purpose, to glorify God. Secondly, notice the place, though, where this is to take place. He says, unto him be glory in the church, in the church. And so it's in the church. And, of course, uh, when these uh, uh, original you know, Ephesian church members heard this letter read for the very first time, if you can imagine that, uh, maybe coming into the uh, schoolroom there, or, or perhaps they were meeting in a, in a wealthy uh, church member's home or whatever, and the pastor comes in and says, Brethren, uh, we have uh, something very special for you this morning. We've got a letter from the Apostle Paul. And he stood up and began to read what we know of as the epistle to the Ephesians. And he came to this verse where he says, Unto him be glory in the church 
The people there would not have thought of some uh, universal conglomerate uh, centered in Rome because it hadn't been invented yet, right? The Roman Catholic Church didn't exist. Uh, nor would they have thought of some universal, invisible gobbledygook like the uh, Protestants teach, because uh, that hadn't come up yet. And uh, they would have simply thought of what the word actually means, right? An assembly of baptized believers. And they would have understood that God was telling them that as believers that were saved and baptized living in Ephesus, that though they may not have had the great edifices of the heathen temples, that they were the place when they as a, as a body of people gathered together, that was the place where God was to be glorified. But notice thirdly, <clears throat> the person. He says that this will take place by <clears throat> Christ Jesus. By Christ Jesus. Now, of course, our entire lives as Christians can be described as by Christ Jesus and in Christ Jesus. We could not be saved, of course, without him. <clears throat> and our whole lives really are in Christ, is it not? But just like Jesus said in John 14, 9, he that has seen me has seen the Father. <clears throat> so it's only through Jesus that we can know God. But it's also only through Jesus that we can glorify God like we should. You see, it's the church <clears throat> that lifts up Jesus Christ that brings the most glory to God the Father. That's important for us to be reminded of that. I think over the years, there's been times when many independent Baptists have lost sight of that simple thought. That our goal is to glorify God, and the way to do that is to lift up Jesus. And I say that because I've seen far too many lift up a man. Lift up some authority figure, some example, some hero that becomes more important to them than Jesus himself. What a mistake. We must lift up Jesus Christ. I'm told that when Da Vinci finished his great painting of the Last Supper, he brought a, a friend in to kind of critique it. And his friend looked at it and he said, you know, that's a beautiful painting. He says, As a matter of fact, the most beautiful part of the entire painting is that cup. And uh, Da Vinci looked at the cup, he grabbed a brush and he blotted it out. And he gave this reason. He said, I don't want anything in my picture to attract more attention than the face of my master. And you know, it could be said that really that was the, the religion, if you will, of the Apostle Paul. That nothing in his preaching, nothing in his character, nothing in his mission, if he could help it, would detract or draw away attention from the face of Jesus Christ. And that needs to be our goal too. That the glory doesn't go to me, the praise doesn't go to me, it goes to him. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. And notice he says that this is going to take place throughout all ages. World without end, amen. He says this can take place throughout all ages. And by saying that, he implies a promise that there will be strong Bible-preaching, Bible-believing churches from the time that Jesus walked this earth until the time he comes back. And that can be very encouraging to us because I know we're going through some unusual days in America, but it's nothing like the persecutions our brethren went through in the Dark Ages, is it? And if God's grace was enough to get them through what they went through, God can get us through as well. And when Jesus comes back, 
Not only has there always been churches standing for him, but there will still be churches standing for him. And in a day when we look around and we see compromise and change all around us, understand you and I can be faithful and there will be churches that will be faithful when Jesus comes back. Now, I say all that to lay a foundation and to draw your attention to this. That according to this epistle, that in the city of Ephesus, there was one small group of people that God had chosen to bring glory to his name, and that was his local church there. That church that we know was started with the help of Aquila and Priscilla in Acts chapter 18, and that church that Paul said was purchased with the blood of Jesus in Acts 20 and verse 28. That church that Paul was uh, writing to Timothy while he was laboring there in 1 Timothy and told him it was the pillar and ground of the truth. That church that we know had pastors as its spiritual leaders, we'll see in our, in our uh, text tonight in chapter 4, and had an extensive history. We read about it in Revelation 2 that that church was the means that God would be glorified in Ephesus. Now, let me pause here for a moment. And again, I'm preaching to a church that uh, I have a tremendous amount of respect for. One that I appreciate very much. One that I, I'm thrilled to think about the impact that you're having through your, through your missions and, and through your, your, uh, your publishing ministry and all, all the different things you've got going on here. But you know, the church at Ephesus was a great church too. And yet they left their first love, didn't they? And so even great churches need to be reminded of the simple basic truths. And so tonight, I believe as we study the rest of the book of Ephesians, what we'll find, and and of course we can only do a cursory study, but but what we'll find is ways that the local church can glorify God. And just like that church at Ephesus was to glorify God by doing these things, Lehigh Valley Baptist Church must do these things if you're going to glorify God. It's not enough that somebody else is doing it. It's not enough that you did it in the past. But a church is made up of its members, its body parts. And we all must be focused on what God has given us to do if he's going to get the glory in this church. And so let's take a brief survey tonight of how we can glorify God at Lehigh Valley Baptist Church. Because... If you've studied the book of Ephesians carefully, you know that we kind of come to a hinge here where Paul shifts gears from focusing on doctrine to uh, focusing on practical. And of course, there's still doctrine throughout the rest of the book as well. And uh, uh, anyway, that's, I'm getting off on a rabbit trail. But, uh, but, uh, but I really believe that, uh, that, that if we study the practical applications in this coming chapters, that we'll see what a church that glorifies God looks like. And so as we do, I hope that you will, along with me, allow God to examine our hearts and show us. Are there some areas where we need some adjustment? Are there some areas where we need to be recalibrated? Lest we become a church that has left our first love. So notice, first of all, in chapter 4 and verse number 11. 
And we'll get back to the intervening verses in a moment, but <clears throat> I think that, uh, that this first point is foundational. In verse 11, Paul says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And, of course, he's talking about those gifted men and offices that he has given to the church. And, and, uh, and so, really, it can truly be said that your pastor is God's gift to you. And uh, I know <clears throat> it's, it's, it's hard for a pastor to tell his church that, but it's easy for me as a guest to tell you that. Your pastor is God's gift to you. And as, as such, there are responsibilities that go along with that. Of course, he has responsibilities, and, and the Scriptures are very clear about what those responsibilities are. Uh, but, but we as the church members have responsibilities too, to respond properly to his ministry. So he says here that he gave some apostles and some prophets. And you say, well, where's the apostles and prophets? Well, you know, back in chapter 2 and verse 20, he told us that they were the foundation and, uh, and so they're still the foundation today, though we don't have apostles and prophets today because there's nobody around that's qualified. Nobody else, you know, God's finished his word. He's not still revealing it to us. And so we don't need prophets and we don't need apostles. The foundation has been laid. And we build upon that foundation when we build on this book. And I know you understand that tonight. Uh, but even uh, I think of, I've got a message that I preach from Romans 15 uh, concerning missions. And, and uh, one of the things that if you read the chapter carefully, uh, Paul quotes the Old Testament several times there. And uh, each time he's using scripture uh, to tell us why he does what he does. And, uh, and it'd be a good idea if we do the same thing. If we look at our church and all right, what are we doing? Why do we do that? Well, let's look at the book because that needs to guide what we do. And so we need to be built upon the scriptures. And so he gave some apostles, some prophets, and some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And uh, I'll let your pastor, you know, explain to you what the evangelists and teachers are. But you know what a pastor is. But here's what I want you to see in verse number 12 is what the pastor does. Or what he's there for. He's for the perfecting of the saints. For the perfecting of the saints. You see, God has given you a pastor... And, and this is how Paul here summarizes his purpose. His purpose is to perfect you. All right. Now, we, we sometimes, I don't know how it happened, but somehow we got it in our head that perfect means absolutely sinless. And I, I, I don't think I've, uh, I can't think of a scripture passage where that is what it means. <laughs> uh, really, the, the idea of perfect is, is to be ideal. It's the idea of, of being mature, if you will, in, in this context. And so our, our pastor is to help us to grow to spiritual maturity. That's the idea. And if we read down in the passage, he tells us what the spiritual maturity will look like. In verse 13, he says, Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So uh, <clears throat> first thing we want to note here is, that spiritual maturity is not measured by the person sitting next to us, right? It's measured by Christ, right? We need to be like him. But then he says that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Now we live in a day where perhaps the winds of false doctrine are blowing harder than ever, ever than, than ever before. 
Now, of course, there's always been false teaching from all kinds of different directions, and some of them even under the label of Christianity. But today with uh, publications and with the Internet and with radio and television, there's false teaching everywhere. And here Paul says that the mark of a mature Christian is that they're not being carried about with every wind of doctrine. That's what the children do. The spiritual child is being tossed to and fro by the Steve Andersons and the other false teachers on the Internet. But the spiritually mature are grounded in their doctrine. And so here I submit to you tonight that God is glorified, number one, by a doctrinally solid church. It is vitally important that we understand what the Bible teaches and have made a firm commitment that whatever the Bible teaches, I will believe it and stand on it no matter what anybody else says, no matter what science says, no matter what the big name preacher says, no matter what some philosopher says or the government says, we must be doctrinally Solid. And so God gives us a pastor to help us become that. And so we need to understand tonight that one of the marks of spiritual maturity is doctrinal stability, that we be grounded in the truths of God's word. Because as was Paul's style, the first half of the book was focused on doctrine. The second part, we see the practical, because doctrine is foundational. Our Christian practice will fall apart if we drift from our doctrinal foundation. It must be built on what we believe. We must believe right if we're going to consistently live right. And so tonight I just want to simply ask you, do you know what you believe? Not just do you uh, think your pastor has a strong grasp on doctrine, But are you a diligent student of doctrine so that you know where you stand and you know the differences between you and and, and the uh, false religion down the street or the Mormon knocking on your door or the Jehovah's Witness uh, sending you a letter in the mail or whatever it might be? Do you know what you believe? And can you show someone else from the Word of God why you believe it? If you go to work and you're working next to... uh, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe you have an opportunity to uh, work, against, work next to um, some, some Amish guy for some reason. All right, would you be able to show them clearly <clears throat> that salvation is by faith alone? Uh, <clears throat> maybe you are working next to a Catholic. Could you show them? Maybe somebody could come up to you and say, hey, why, why are you so different, Right? Why, why are you always smiling? You ever get accused of that one? Why is it you don't listen to the music I listen to? Why is it you're not going to the movie theater to catch that, that, that you know, new movie coming out? Why is it you dress differently or whatever it might be that gets their attention? It's not enough to just say, well, that's what our pastor says. Or Baptists don't do that. <clears throat> or that's what our church does. Could you show them from the word of God? And so God is glorified by a doctrinally solid church. Secondly, and by the way, you may have noticed in the, in the video, I emphasize the idea of discipleship. That's why, that's why I do that, because 
uh, this, this, uh, if, if we believe that God is glorified by a doctrinally solid church, that will, that will guide how we plant a church. I, I, I want to I raise up a church. I, I want to see God raise up a church, I should say, that is grounded in the word of God. That's the reason good preaching will include doctrine. But notice, secondly, as uh, verse number 12, we go back to verse 12, <clears throat> God gives us a pastor for the perfecting of the saints. Well, why is it important that the saints be perfected? For the work of the ministry. You see, <clears throat> in America especially, we, we sometimes use that word ministry, and people get the connotation, the idea that the ministry is the pastor and what he does, Right? And uh, but in the Bible, the work of the ministry is what the body does. It's what the church does. Now, what is the work of the ministry? Well, the work of the ministry, of course, is that that work that Jesus gave us to do, preaching the gospel and discipling converts. And all of us have a responsibility to be a part of that work. That's why we need to grow spiritually mature. We are not. uh, It's not God's intention that we just be a sponge and soak up all the truth and just sit there and grow mold, right? We're supposed to wring it out, so to speak, in service for Him. <clears throat> I, uh, uh, I guess shortly after, uh, well, I guess it was even before, um, but after I was out of college anyway, I uh, began to take more and more an interest in studying Baptist history and and I uh, came across this, uh, this story in several places, um, even, uh, even books that were not by Baptists. But, uh, but on the 4th of June, 1768, um, some of you are probably familiar with this story. John Waller, Lewis Craig, James Childs, and others were seized by the sheriff in, uh, I believe it was in Culpeper, Virginia, and hailed before three magistrates who stood in the meeting house yard and bound them in a penalty of a thousand pounds to appear at court two days after. Then at court, they were arraigned as disturbers of the peace. That was their great crime. And on their trial, they were vehemently accused by a certain lawyer who, according to the official court records that uh, I think you can still find today, said this, May it please your worships. These men are great disturbers of the peace. They cannot meet a man upon the road, but they must ram a text of Scripture down his throat. Now, it's hard to read that in a, you know... uh, a history of revival written by a Presbyterian or something like that and not smile, right? <clears throat> but, uh, but, you know, as I think about some of the Baptist churches that I know in America today, um, honestly, I think many of us have lost that evangelistic zeal that was exemplified by those early separate Baptists. And I submit to you tonight that God is not only glorified by a doctrinally solid church, but God is glorified by a determinedly sowing church. That we must be doing the work that God has given us, and we must be determined to do it. Uh, Those early American Baptists faced great persecution, and yet they planted churches everywhere. And we need to be determined to keep going. You know, it's, um, it's one thing to get excited after a sermon and say, oh, I'm going to get involved in soul winning. And, 
And uh, we fill our pocket with tracks and we go to work and we start witnessing to co-workers and, and they start getting mad at us or rejecting us or saying no to us. And sometimes our zeal can cool down a little bit, can't it? Or we start knocking on doors and we're excited about, man, I want to see somebody get saved. And after we knock on a hundred doors and two people answer and both of them say, you know, don't want to talk to us, we might feel like we're, we want to quit, right? We must determine to sow. We've got to keep at it. Paul said in due season <clears throat> we'll reap if we faint not. Now, this church at Ephesus was a church known for its evangelistic efforts. In Acts 19 and verse 10, and while Paul was there, uh, it says this, that, that this preaching and evangelism continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, I, just, now again, it's not the continent of Asia, but the, uh, the Roman province of Asia, but still, that is a very large region and with thousands of people living there, I don't think Paul personally preached the gospel to all of them all by himself. It was the church. And when we get to the book of Revelation and we find that there's seven churches in Asia, well, where'd the other six come from? Well, quite possibly they were started by this church at Ephesus. But certainly Paul set the example and challenged them in Acts 20 and verses 20 and 21. When he reminded them how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. And then he tells us what he taught house to house. Because you might uh, just jump to the conclusion that maybe he's just talking about discipling, you know, and going from church member's house to church member's house. But in verse 21, he says, testifying both to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul set the example of taking the gospel to every creature, just like Paul said, just like Jesus said, which meant he went door to door, just like faithful Baptists do today. And we must be faithful in that important work. Now, I think most Christians have a desire for their church to grow, right? We, uh, I think we would all say amen to that prayer, you know, Lord, increase our congregation, you know, may our church grow. And, uh, but I want to challenge you tonight to make it a little more specific. Don't just pray that souls would get saved and your church would grow, But make it your prayer, make it your goal. Lord, use me. Use me to share the gospel with somebody this week. Use me to invite somebody this week. Use me this this Sunday or even this Wednesday to be an encouragement to to somebody. Use me to be a testimony if there's a, a new visitor that comes in. But looking to God to use you. You know, so often we come to church and, and I think we really do have the, the attitude, you know, we, we, we come in with the burdens of the week, we plop down in our chair and cross our, our arms and give our pastor a, a, an impatient look and we say, all right, pastor, bless me, you know. But really we should come to church and say, Lord, use me to be a blessing. 
You know, we need to stop thinking about church as uh, an event and realize it's a body. And God wants to work through each and every one of us. And so God is glorified by a determinedly sowing church. Notice thirdly, God is glorified by a devotedly spiritual church. And we won't spend as much time here as it, it deserves, but Ephesians is the book where we are warned to grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. It's the book where we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit and to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. We're told to put on spiritual armor while praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And Paul himself has already prayed for this church twice in this short letter, both for their spiritual enlightenment and their spiritual experience. But I want to ask you tonight, are you spiritual? Because again, if a church as a body is going to be spiritual, it must be made up of spiritual body parts, right? Spiritual members. Now, of course, it's hard to measure our own spirituality. Uh, it's easy to just uh, tuck our King James Bible under our shoulder and button up our suit coat and say, oh, yeah, I'm spiritual, you know. I'm here every service. Well, what's a spiritual man really look like? Is he not walking in humility? Is he not serious about prayer? Is he not spiritually minded because to be carnally minded is death, according to Romans 8? Are we really as spiritual as we should be? Because God is glorified by a devotedly spiritual church. Fourthly, let's get back to chapter 4 here in verse 15. <clears throat> Paul goes on and says that we need to be speaking the truth in love and we may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. I, I love that picture. You know, uh, we've probably all seen a, you know, a little toddler with a big old head, you know, and you say, man, he needs to grow up into his head, right? And uh, that's what the church is. Uh, we, are, we are an imperfect body, Still growing, still developing, but we've got a perfect head. And we need to grow up into him. But notice how that takes place. He says we need to be speaking the truth. You see, part of our spiritual growth is that we are sharing truth. That's why it's so important that we be involved in the work of the ministry, both evangelism and discipleship and encouraging others. But notice that this speaking in truth, or speaking the truth, must be done in love. Verse 16 goes on, it says, From whom the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Now, without going into a bunch of grammar and breaking it down word by word, phrase by phrase, this is, this is the idea. All right, that, um, that a church is people that have been saved, right? That have become a body. And because we're saved, we have God working in us, right? And so the church, if it is healthy, is made up of a bunch of body parts that all supply something to the life of the body. Notice that phrase, every joint supplieth. Every joint. 
Now, you might think of yourself as being not that important to the body. You might think of yourself as just a pew warmer or whatever, or chair warmer, I guess. Uh, but understand, every person that God saves and attaches to a body is intended to supply something to the life of the body. That, that's why you're here. That's why he puts you and I know you look back and you say, well, I joined the church. No, God put you into the church. That's, that's the way the scriptures describe it. So God made you a part of this body for a reason. And you supply something to the life of this body. And so don't ever think that you are not important to the life of the church. God has you here for a reason. But here's the real point I want to bring out. Is that not only is that true of you. That you're important to this body. Uh, but the people sitting next to you are important to the body as well. That we should value each other. And recognize that it is God's plan that they supply something to the life of this body. And they are as vital to the body as you or the pastor is. Every part of the body is important. Now, I've seen this happen over and over again. Uh, there will be somebody who, I don't know, perhaps because of their gifting or their personality or whatever, they'll become very zealous for God, perhaps even early in their Christian life, and God will use them to reach people. But because they, they have not grown to be all that God wants them to be, eventually their bitterness comes out or their anger problem comes out or their meanness expresses itself, and that young plant that they reached with the gospel becomes trampled on and is offended. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 6, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, I have never, in my hardest sermons, ever said, you'd be better off if we just kill you, <laughs> to one of our congregants. And I'm sure you've, you've never heard a sermon like that. <clears throat> but essentially, that's what Jesus said. These are strong, strong words. And here's the point I want to submit to you tonight, is that God is glorified by a decidedly, Soft-hearted church. And I say decidedly because it's distinctive. It's not, it's not just we're nice guys, right? It's, it's different. It's the grace of God flowing through us. It's the love of God being demonstrated through us that enables us to be soft-hearted in a way that the world cannot understand. If we go back to the first part of chapter 4, we'll find that unity is very important to the body. In uh, the first few verses, uh, Paul says, I therefore the prison of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And he goes on and tells us why we should have unity. But, um, but notice he says that we need to be endeavoring to keep it. 
Now, if you're saved and I'm saved and we're both baptized and we've both agreed to the same church covenant and, and we're part of the same body, we have unity. It is a divinely implanted uni, unity in us by the Spirit of God. But here we are challenged to endeavor, to work at, to labor at, to put effort into protecting that unity. And it's very important that we take that work very seriously. In the book of Acts, we see an example of what a unified church can do. Right? That church that was uh, in one accord <clears throat> also saw great grace and great power. And I think, uh, I, I think especially preachers that have been around a while can say that from experience that they've heard about churches, that, uh, that, uh, that when there's unity in a church, God blesses it, God works through it, God uses it. Even the, it seems to be a natural law built into this creation that there is a certain synergy when God's creation works together. I read about a horse pull in Canada where one horse could pull 9,000 pounds, the winning horse, and the, the second place horse could pull 8,000 pounds. But when the owners put them together just to see what would happen, you know, some probably expected that they'd be able to you know, pulled 17,000 pounds working together, but no, they could pull 30,000 pounds. And when a church is pulling together, they can accomplish a whole lot more than when they're pulling against each other. We see this principle even in the Old Testament in Leviticus 26 and verses 7 and 8. Where God says and promises the people of Israel, he says, you should chase your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword. And five of you shall chase an hundred and a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. And if you're a little bit geeky like me, <coughs> you might do the math there and uh, find that uh, uh, five chasing a hundred, that's a ratio of one to 20. But a hundred putting 10,000 to flight, that's a ratio of one to 100. You see, it multiplied the number of enemies they could handle when they work together. And so we need to learn to be soft-hearted. Look at verse number 30. I believe Paul gives us further instruction on this. Now, there's many ways that we guard the unity of the church. I think uh, uh, the process in Matthew 18 is vital. If you're offended, don't, don't just get mad and go to a different church. Go talk to the one offended you and, and try, to, try to get it remedied. Follow the process that Jesus gave us. <clears throat> if uh, you're the one that's hurt somebody and you know it, then remember what Jesus said. He said, before you bring your gift to the altar, go make it right. Then <clears throat> put your check in the plate to modernize it a little bit today. But notice verse number 30. He says, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. And right next to that, very, very uh, lofty spiritual command. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Well, there's a lot of Christians that are bitter today, isn't there? They've been hurt and... <clears throat> 
I know it's no fun being hurt. But when we get hurt, there's a real temptation to nurse that hurt and and to develop a, a bitterness that colors our entire outlook. Not, not just that we're mad at that person. It, it, it rots us. And it robs us of unity with our brothers and sisters. God calls it sin. And he tells us here to get rid of bitterness, get rid of wrath, get rid of anger, get rid of clamor that when our anger turns into yelling at each other, get rid of that. Evil speaking, that, of course, covers a lot of things. Put those things away, along with malice. And then verse 32. Now, we like to make the kids memorize that verse, right? So they don't fight with each other and so that they aren't uh, picking on each other in school or whatever. <clears throat> But God wrote that to adult church members. Be kind one to another. Be nice to each other. I I, I, I sometimes wonder if maybe even the church at Ephesus didn't have a problem with this. But God looked through the quarters of time. He said, man, those independent Baptists. I got to do something to try to straighten them out ahead of time. And isn't it sad that God has to write to believers that have the same spiritual life in us, that have the love of Jesus Christ, that have the grace of God active in our lives, and he has to tell us, hey, be nice to each other. But he does. We need to be tenderhearted, forgiving, giving each other the benefit of the doubt, looking at each other in a positive light. Because God's glorified by a soft-hearted church. Lastly, God is glorified by a dedicatedly serious church. And I'll just give you this quickly. In uh, verse um, 17 and following, Paul begins to reason with them that they should not live like other Gentiles. Um, And then he tells them that really our, our old life before we're saved is kind of like a dirty garment. We need to take it off. Get rid of those old sinful practices and put on something to replace it. Put on the life of Christ. Put on the, uh, uh, the, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. <clears throat> and then he goes on and he gets specific. Because, you know, sometimes <clears throat> we, uh, whether it's at our conversion or sometimes even after we're saved, I think, uh, we have a moment of clarity where we realize, you know what, I'm still living for myself and we surrender ourselves to God. And that can be a wonderful thing, can be a big step forward in spiritual growth. But here we see that there are individual specific decisions that need to be made. He says, if you've got a problem with lying, this is what you do. If you've got an anger problem, this is what you do. If you, if you uh, steal, this is what you do. And my point is simply this, that God is glorified by a dedicatedly serious church. And this is what a dedicatedly serious church looks like. That we don't sit around waiting for pastor to get up and say, hey, by the way, what you're doing is wrong in a sermon. And then we say, okay, fine, I'll change, pastor. But rather, we are diligent students of the word of God saying, Lord, I want to be what you want me to be. 
Teach me today. And when we come to preaching, a pastor may not even get on our sin, but in our heart, the Holy Spirit does. And we say, yes, Lord, I need to get that straightened out. Because we're serious about being clean. Serious about being right with God. Serious about glorifying God with our individual lives. And a church that's made up of members that think that way will be an exciting church. A church that God will richly bless. Because it will be a church that's glorifying to Him. And so tonight, God is glorified by a doctrinally solid church. A determinedly sowing church. A devotedly spiritual church, a dedicatedly, or excuse me, decidedly soft-hearted church, and a dedicatedly serious church. In verse number 20, he said, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. What, a, what an exciting turn of phrase, is it not? I like what uh, John Trapp said about it. He says it's more than exceedingly or excessively. God hath not only a fullness of abundance, but of redundance. Right? He's got more than enough. And he's often better to us than our prayers. He does even more than we ask or think. But what I want to draw your attention to is that next phrase. Because sometimes we can be challenged with a message that, that focuses on duty, focuses on what we should be and what we should do. <clears throat> and rather than being encouraged or challenged, we can get discouraged because, oh, I'm not that. Man, that sounds awful hard. But notice this next phrase. He says, God's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Back in chapter 1, Paul prayed that their eyes would be open to something, that they, their eyes would be open to the power of God that was active and directed at their lives. And then he illustrates what that power looked like. He said, it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and set him at the, at the right hand of the Father. And tonight, we need to understand that that same power is directed at us today. And when God challenges us that we need to change, he doesn't just say, now, <clears throat> now do it or else. No, he says, this is what you need to do. And I've got all the power and grace and help that you need to do it. And so God is able tonight to make us what we should be. He's able to use us. He's able to build his church if it is glorifying him by Jesus Christ as he lives through us, as he operates as the head, and as the church focuses on giving more glory to him.